0: From the newsroom of the Washington Post. Hi, this is Tracy Jan calling from the Post. And my guest.
1: President Trump, how are you?
0: Hi, it's Robin Devon at the Washington Post. This is Post Reports. I'm Martine Powers. It's Monday, June 1st. Today, why police are turning to more aggressive tactics at protests, and a look at who is protesting. Plus, a milestone mission to space. Over the weekend, protests continued over police brutality and the death of George Floyd.
2: It's been an
0: up-and-down journey here Holly Bailey is a national political reporter who's been covering the protests in Minneapolis. We had um, a series of protests from downtown Minneapolis, people driving around in cars, being pursued by police, running through red lights, trying to stay mobile to avoid getting arrested for this 8 p.m. curfew that's been in place here. And around the country, masses of protesters turned out in Dallas. What we recognize now is that this is no longer Peaceful protest. In Salt Lake City. I can't breathe. I can't breathe. Omaha. Last night was a different story. We are going to declare a state of emergency for the city of Omaha. And other major cities. Protests turning dangerous on the streets of Philadelphia, several buildings and cars.
3: George Floyd, they've been chanting that name all night. That is the inspiration behind this protest here in Memphis tonight and behind the protest for the last five We're going to start with what
2: was that the- peaceful protest in Pan Pacific Park. Time and time again, we heard Black Lives Matter. In Louisville, Kentucky, where one person
1: was shot and killed overnight.
0: Here in Washington, we saw standoffs between protesters and police in front of the White House.
2: They're about to tear dash are covering our
1: faces. What does it mean for you to be out here right now?
0: Just fighting for our rights, making sure that our voice is heard. And me, even though I'm white,
1: I'm here with them fully 100 percent
0: According to the Associated Press, more than 4,000 people were arrested during demonstrations over the weekend. (laughs) So what have we seen with protests around the country over the weekend?
2: So we've seen a lot of confrontations between protesters and police. And in some instances, those confrontations have been violent. And in some instances, it's raised fresh questions about the officer's conduct as, as much as the protesters' conduct. Some videos that have gotten a lot of circulation, you see officers, for example, firing a paint round at people standing on a porch of a home.
1: Ah. Ah.
2: Or, you know, firing uh, rubber bullets or pepper balls at reporters who are just sort of standing out on the street trying to cover what's happening who are clearly identified as reporters
3: they're aiming, their, they're aiming their fire now they're working towards us they're working. step back get back get back get back your head your head he's head step back
2: and obviously that sort of behavior that's those sort of incidents raise questions about not just what the protesters are doing but what the officers are doing My name is Devlin Barrett and I cover federal law enforcement for The Washington Post.
0: And this idea of how police are supposed to be responding to protests, that is something that police departments have given a lot of thought essentially since Ferguson and since you've started to see mass protests around the country, especially when it comes to police brutality. So what is the thinking now about how officers are supposed to be responding when it comes to
2: crowd control? So there is still not a uniform view on some of these questions, but there has been a great deal of conversation in police circles for more than five years about what is the best way to contain and control, you know, angry mass protests. In the last, you know, six years or so since the protests in Ferguson, what you've seen is a move slightly away from things like armored vehicles. You know, a lot of the argument in and around St. Louis back at the time was these military vehicles called MRAPs and other vehicles are really intimidating and seem to be like a show of force that is not necessary and may actually antagonize the situation. Okay. So we've seen a little bit less of that in this instance, but the reality is you still have a lot of officers in a lot of cities dressed up in riot gear and firing tear gas and firing projectiles. Now, there's a lot of folks in law enforcement who would argue that the more you basically armor up your your men and women and the more you fire projectiles, the more you are basically encouraging a sort of tit-for-tat relationship with the protesters, and that cycle can just repeat and get worse over time. There is another view, frankly, that says that, look, if you expect trouble, you have to become prepared to deal with the trouble and keep the trouble to a minimum. And and that is clearly where a lot of police chiefs heads are in the last, I'd say, 48 hours, because a lot of officers are showing up, you know, starting right out of the gate in riot gear. And the use of tear gas is really a throwback to another era of policing. And it shows the degree to which, Police departments are, are still really trying to sort of brute force their way through this problem. Police chiefs use it and uh, feel they need to use it.
0: And you also mentioned curfews that are being used as part of policing strategies right now. Why is that?
2: So curfews are designed to say, okay, fine, you can have a protest, but by 9 o'clock or 10 o'clock or whatever the deadline is, everybody's got to be off the street because at beyond that hour, people start looking for trouble and making trouble. And so the notion is that if you give people sort of a set time by which all of the law-abiding peaceful protesters really need to leave, then it's easier for the police officers to deal with the ones who remain. The challenge becomes, once you have a curfew, And once you reach that curfew, essentially the police engage in in street clearing. And, And I think a lot of the videos you see of officers firing projectiles, in some cases seemingly indiscriminately, and in some cases apparently targeting reporters and targeting people who really aren't doing anything wrong other than being out around the time of the curfew, that curfew sort of creates this dynamic where police officers just start clearing streets.
0: And I think there's a similar dynamic playing out when it comes to how police are dressed and how they are getting around cities right now. That The fact that they're showing up in riot gear, the fact that they have military vehicles, that they have a lot of aspects to how they're presenting themselves that, that seem super amped up in a military way. Like that also creates this feeling among protesters that, oh, these people are out to hurt us. Like they wouldn't be showing up like this if they weren't trying to basically eliminate these protests as quickly as possible.
2: Right. And it becomes a chicken and egg problem, frankly, on both sides, because I think there are a number of people who study protests and and protest behavior who think that cops in full riot gear not only changes the behavior of the people wearing the riot gear, but changes the behavior of the people facing those cops in riot gear in that you know, inhibitions are lowered and everyone sees each other as less human than they would otherwise if, you know, they were all just standing out there in sweaty t-shirts. And I think the riot gear, you know, there are experts who say the riot gear really sort of encourages a kind of quicker quicker boiling point, if that makes sense.
0: And you, you have to wonder whether that dynamic also holds for the fact that protesters are now all wearing masks and they too have their faces covered and that there is this kind of inability for police and protesters to look at each other face to face and kind of recognize each other as human beings.
2: Yeah, I, I, it's interesting. I've spoken to a couple of folks who think the mask issue, that the, the issue of protesters wearing masks just because of the pandemic is really a complicating factor in all this because police officers are trained to view people who wear masks in protests as inherently more dangerous or more suspicious and more likely to be up to violence or some other type of crime. But now you've got a situation where a ton of people are wearing masks and many of them are not up to, you know, or planning any kind of actual crime or violence. But the police officers have a hard harder time distinguishing now between... Uh, what you might call the the more determined set of lawbreakers versus people who just want to, you know, protest police brutality.
0: And for these incidents that we've seen where protesters have been injured by police or where police have done things that people have seen as taking things too far and, and behaving too aggressively, have there been any repercussions for those officers or are there likely to be repercussions?
2: there have been very few repercussions immediately. But for example, in Atlanta, two officers were fired for the way they pretty roughly arrested a couple of college students. In New York, they've already announced investigations into the way some of the officers have, to your point, aggressively gone after some of the protesters. And the mayor there, Bill de Blasio, has made the point that he sympathizes with officers who are in situations where they are scared for their own safety.
1: If you, Gloria, or anyone else was inside that police vehicle surrounded by people, you would have had a really tough decision to make.
2: I I think one of the videos that a lot of folks have seen is a video of, of crowds swarming around a couple of police SUVs, and then the police SUVs lunging forward and basically knocking down a whole bunch of protesters. And frankly, I think that encapsulates a lot of the debate over what's happening right now. Because on the one hand, those officers were in their vehicles that were getting pelted with things. And I think the mayor, you know, is making the point that those officers felt threatened and that their lives were in danger. You
1: can't stay there. You can't get out of the vehicle. You have to get yourself and the vehicle out of the situation safely for all incredibly difficult circumstance.
2: And from the protesters' point of view, that's just cars mowing down people. So those investigations will happen. I think one of the challenging things for police is that if, you, if you're a person who thinks the police have engaged in a lot of misconduct, starting with George Floyd, all you have to do is look at videos of the last 48 hours, and, and you'll probably believe that more strongly than ever because there are definitely videos out there of police doing some pretty alarming things for no apparent reason on video. Obviously, not every video shows every thing that led up to that moment, but there are certainly enough videos out there to question the judgment of at a minimum individual officers and how they're doing some of this. And the reality is that the process of investigating police officers is a slow one. That is the way the system is built for, it, for the investigations of police officers to be slow.
0: And in the meantime, I think that what you are seeing in these videos or in some of these videos, it, it does help justify the outrage and criticisms from protesters who say that police behave in a way that is not to help people but to hurt people.
2: Right, I think I think you see here from a lot of protesters who say, look, just if you if you want to understand why we're upset, just look at how they are escalating as opposed to us, meaning the police officers are escalating, not the protesters. I think most police officers' response to that would be some version of, you know, we're trying to do two things at once. We're trying to let People who want to peacefully protest, protest. And we are also trying to ensure that people can't just you know, vandalize things and commit crimes of violence because obviously the general public and the, the powers that be don't want to just allow that to happen. Those two things are, are not necessarily done the same way. You may have to put one down to pick up the other at times. And that is, I think, part of the challenge For police departments, I I am struck by how much tear gas is being used in so many places. There was a time when uh, police experts thought, you know, that tear gas was going to just be phased out over the long run, and and boy, it sure seems like it's everywhere now.
0: Devlin Barrett covers the Justice Department for the Post. The Post has obtained audio of the conference call that President Trump had on Monday with governors from around the country about how to handle the protests.
3: If you don't dominate,
2: you're wasting your time. They're going to run over you. You're going to look like a bunch of jerks. You have
1: to dominate. And you have to arrest people, and you have to
2: try people. And they have to go to jail for long periods of time. I saw
0: one Trump also chastised some of the governors for failing to call up adequate troops from the National Guard. I don't know what it is politically when you don't want to call out people. They're ready, willing,
3: and able. They want to fight for the country. I don't know what it is, someday you'll have to explain it to me, but it takes so long to call them up. We're waiting for you. We're shocked
1: in certain areas, L.A. We're shocked that you're not using the greatest resource
3: you can use, and they're trained for this stuff, and they're incredible. Why you're not calling them up? I don't know, but you're making a mistake because you're making yourself look like look like fools. So as we've seen in recent days, and particularly over this weekend, the protests that began in Minneapolis both grow in size there, but also spread and pop up in cities all across the country.
0: Shane Harris covers national security
3: for The Post. We were trying to make sense of exactly who all these people were because we were hearing conflicting accounts of that from local officials, from state officials, and notably from federal officials, from the attorney general, Bill Barr, and eventually from the president. And
0: what were those accounts? Like, what were they saying about who the protesters were?
3: We heard the Minnesota governor, Tim Waltz, tell reporters that... I think our best estimate right now that I heard is about 20%
2: is what we think are Minnesotans, and about 80% are outside...
3: He believed that the vast majority, 80% of those rioting and protesting, had come from outside the state. And he blamed far-right white supremacists and perhaps organized drug cartels, which was a little confusing because we didn't quite understand why drug cartels would be protesting. We heard the head of the Department of Public Safety in Minnesota. Is this organized
2: crime? Is this an organized cell of terror?
3: The mayor of Minneapolis, Jacob Frey, said as well that out-of-state actors and possibly even foreign actors were trying to destabilize the city and the region. And we also heard the mayor of St. Paul, Melvin Carter, say, As I talk to my friends uh, who have been in this movement for a very long time, who wake up in this movement every day, and I ask them what they're seeing, what they're feeling, what they're hearing, to a person, I hear them say, we don't know these folks. And then we heard a similar kind of theme, but a different villain, if you will, from the federal government where Attorney General William Barr came out and said, In many places, it appears the violence is planned, organized and driven by anarchic and left extremist groups, far left extremist groups, using Antifa-like tactics, many of whom travel from outside the state to promote the violence. And it kind of occurred to me and some of our editors. Well, this doesn't seem to make a lot of sense. Which is it? Is this genuinely just a pile on, where every political extremist group is trying to opportunistically seize upon this, or is what we're seeing actually more? No, it's you know what you would think of as regular people, citizens who are coming out to protest this injustice. So,
0: are there any hard numbers that tell us whether or not a large percentage of the people who
3: are protesting are actually quote unquote outsiders? No. We had statements from Governor Tim Walz in Minnesota on Saturday who said, citing his own officials' assessments, that up to 80% of those who were protesting and rioting came from outside Minnesota. But then later in the day, we heard from local officials at the Hennepin County Sheriff's Office who reported that of the 57 people arrested through Saturday morning, about 82% of them provided a Minnesota address to authorities. So it was almost the exact opposite of what the governor was saying.
0: And what about these suggestions that the protests might somehow be encouraged by foreign governments or, or instigated by foreign governments?
3: Well, my sources in the intelligence community said over the weekend that right now, There's no indication that there are foreign actors on the ground in any of these cities trying to – construct the protests and that they don't see any indication of foreign governments trying to do that remotely, you know, I'm stirring things up in social media in a way that they, they sort of look like they're planning a protest when actually it's, you know, it's Russian trolls or agents. What we have seen, though, are two things. One is certainly Russian state media, Chinese state media covering these protests and doing it in a way that, shines a light for their viewers on the dysfunction in the American political system. And then we are seeing overtly Russian actors and some Chinese as well in social media amplifying the protests by using the hashtag that others are using as well. That's a little bit different, though, from sort of covert influence where the Russians might be, for instance, trying to pose as Americans or even pose as activists like they did in the 2016 presidential campaign. So far, we haven't Seen That, which is, I think, another piece of evidence that what we're witnessing happening in the United States is protests by Americans that is growing out of their own dissatisfaction and their own grievance.
0: And so what you're saying is, is that at least from your reporting and your understanding of what's being discussed in the intelligence community right now, that these narratives about who these outsiders are in the protests, that they're not borne out by what people actually know.
3: We just don't find evidence that the protests which are now being seen in dozens of cities across the United States are the work of far-left radicals or, quote-unquote, Antifa. You know, no doubt there are people who are in these protests who are taking advantage of the moment. Even state officials, you know, who I talked to said, look, there are people – who are in these marches and who are rioting that our local grassroots community organizers say they don't know, they don't recognize them, and there leads to an assumption that they've come from outside. But the idea, as President Trump and Attorney General Barr have portrayed it, that this is all somehow the work of Antifa, there's just no evidence of that, and there's quite a lot of evidence to the contrary.
0: And so then why are these narratives being used if there is no evidence to support them?
3: Well, I think that what the president wants to do now is use the idea that Antifa is responsible for these protests to avoid discussing what the protests are actually about, which is police brutality, systemic injustice, racism. It is a way of not having that conversation, which is very clearly the one that I think many of the protesters want to have and are, are very angry that is not being had. I think it also gives him an opportunity to not have a conversation about the coronavirus pandemic and to portray what is happening. In cities across America, which I think, by the way, is inextricably linked to the pandemic, it's a way of him describing this as the work of his political opponents, of the far left, of radicals, of Democrats, and kind of painting with this very broad brush to essentially absolve himself of any responsibility in response to both the pandemic and to addressing what are undeniably systemic issues in law enforcement and criminal justice and community policing that we're seeing – yet again, laid bare this time by the pandemic and by the death of George Floyd.
0: But as you said, this isn't just a thing that President Trump is doing. You have Democrats and and the governor of Minnesota and the mayor of Minneapolis also talking about this idea of outsiders, people who are coming in, white supremacists, that, that isn't necessarily founded in evidence. So why are they talking about this?
3: I think... Two things about that. One, I think they were legitimately stunned by the size, certainly in Minnesota and in Minneapolis, by the size of the protests. And they believed once they had made an arrest and charged one of the officers in the death of Mr. Floyd with third degree murder and manslaughter, that that was going to essentially, I think, quiet things, that people would be satisfied. And then the protests grew. And I think that they were believing that this must be the work of outsiders because, look, we're doing things to address this in our community. Also, there are their own contacts within community organizing groups that say, we don't know who these people are. We don't recognize them. Certainly, there must be some outside elements Coming in. I think that just stands to reason. But the idea that it is overwhelmingly outsiders, I think, is something that maybe took hold as a way of explaining something that was happening that local and state officials didn't understand and perhaps you know, didn't want to have to reckon with directly. And I think one of the reasons why you see this commonality from
0: officials, both on the local and state and, and federal level, saying that this is all because of outsiders is just because there's this feeling of being perplexed at the level of Destructiveness of the protests and this idea that this level of of destructiveness and this rage is coming from locals, I, I think, is really scary to people, that it makes them feel like there is this latent. Anger and feeling of oppression that officials don't really want to reckon with. And if they believe that it's from outsiders and people who they're not responsible for who are just coming in, it's much easier to write off as, as just those people who are coming in to do these terrible things to our city rather than a result of people who are in the city feeling this pent up anger and hopelessness.
3: I think that's right, and I think some of that was even reflected in emails that I got over the weekend from people who said that they were residents in, in Minneapolis and they lived there, and we're and we're taking issue with this idea that this protest was largely local, if you want to think of it that way. And they said, look, I was even out there and saw some of these people and they don't look like people from around here. And they were violent and they were looting, which is not to say that they were wrong or that they're you know, trying to mislead people. I'm sure there are people who came from outside or who are even local, who are seizing on this as a moment to cause mayhem and havoc. But there, too, I kind of sensed in that in that response from people This not wanting to grapple with the idea that no, perhaps hundreds and even thousands of members of our community could in fact be so angry. Feeling so hopeless and helpless that they did take to the streets and that some of that boiled over into violence and into rage, which not only have we seen historically in the United States, but it's happening in cities all over the country. And and that doesn't feel organized to me. That feels spontaneous and like an expression of people's frustration and their anger, which is... Articulable. It is historically rooted. We understand where it's coming from. And I think, you know, to try and layer on Antifa or white nationalists on the top of it is just a kind of a convenient way to explain it away and not have the much more difficult conversation about how do you actually address these grievances that people are, are expressing.
0: Shane Harris covers national security for The Post. And now, one more thing about the launch of a historic SpaceX flight.
1: Yeah, on Saturday, I was at the Kennedy Space Center in Florida to see this historic launch go down.
0: Chris Davenport covers the space
2: industry for The Post. Again, they're going to be doing a series of burns on the way uphill towards the International Space Station 5 spread out over the, the first 16 hours or so of their flight.
1: It was the first flight of NASA astronauts from U.S. soil since the space shuttle retired in 2011, so nearly a decade. This was oh, a totally different way of launching people. I mean, it was NASA's astronauts, but they were flying on SpaceX's rocket. The rocket had flown many, many times before, dozens of times, uh, but the spacecraft, you know, was really new. It had only flown once before. It had never had astronauts on it. Falcon 9 is in startup. Dragon is in countdown. FTS is armed for launch. I think everyone was just leading up to it so amped up. And so, you know, just it was such a supercharged atmosphere because it was, you know, it had already been delayed once. The weather was really fickle. It was hot and stormy and steamy. And it was sort of this confusion about whether it's going to launch or not. But they kept pressing ahead and pressing ahead.
2: SpaceX Dragon, seven, we're go for launch. Seven, Let's light this candle. Five,
1: four, three, two. Liftoff of the Falcon 9 and Crew Dragon. Go NASA, go SpaceX.
2: Godspeed, bottom Dog.
1: And then they did it. America
2: has launched. And it
1: was like this moment of just bliss and, and grace, really, that once it got going, it was like, my gosh, they did it, and they're okay. Reports say all systems are go. The mission went exactly as planned. I mean, the liftoff was flawless. Dragon separation confirmed. Dragon separation <laughs> confirmed.
0: There is a great view right in front of you Fountain of Dragon separating.
1: Then, when the Dragon spacecraft was in orbit with uh, Doug Hurley and Bob Behnken, the the NASA astronauts on board, you know, it was in orbit around the Earth for almost 19 hours and. It kept raising its orbit and raising its orbit as it was trying to catch up with the International Space Station. And then docking was Sunday morning.
0: Dragon SpaceX, docking sequence is complete. So I think that the fact that this launch went off well on Saturday, it was obviously a huge deal for the space industry and for NASA and for for anyone who cares about space. But I think it also just came at a really interesting moment where it feels really dark to be on planet Earth right now and especially to be in the United States right now as we are battling a pandemic and seeing so many people die and thinking yet again about police brutality and the outrage around that. And it just felt like this one thing was good and it was nice to see.
1: Yeah, you're right. The NASA administrator, Jim Bridenstine, compared it to uh, Apollo 11 in 1969 when, you know, you had civil rights protests and you had the war in Vietnam and then, you know, you had men walking on the moon. Still, though, and it seems to me that there's still a disconnect, though, that it certainly did, you know, represent a hopeful moment. But... I don't know that the nation is rallying around, you know, this launch as a unifying moment that perhaps it did, you know, in the 60s. I think there is still a disconnect and, you know, this wasn't in any way a cure for everything that's going on right now. I mean, I think it was a nice distraction and a pleasant distraction, but, you know, I I don't know that how long it will actually hold the nation's attention.
0: Chris Davenport covers the space industry for The Post. That's it for Post Reports. Thanks for listening. We're still looking to hear from listeners about what you're seeing as your community reopens. To share a dispatch, record a short voice memo on your phone and send it to postreports at Watchpost.com.